0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of t for I am so psyched you press play. And trust me, you will be too when you learn more about today's guest. Because if you're interested in building a meaningful career in the U.S. Armed Services, specifically in the U.S. Navy, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is a retired four-star admiral who became the first African-American woman to command a ship in the Navy and is also the first African-American woman to reach the rank of three-star and then four-stars in the armed forces. But before I introduce you to recently retired Admiral Michelle Howard, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday's and gives you a one-stop shop place to get the lowdown on that week's guests and the episodes, and it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my service-oriented Sumatra lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my distinguished guest is retired Admiral Michelle Howard, who served 35 years in the U.S. Navy before retiring just a couple years ago. Admiral Howard led sailors and Marines many times during her career as the commander of a ship, an expeditionary strike force, task force, and a naval theater. A veteran of operations that included NATO peacekeeping, Indonesia tsunami relief, desert storm, and Iraqi freedom, she was thrust into the international spotlight in 2009 as leader of the counter-piracy task force that rescued civilian Captain Richard Phillips from Somali Pirates. You might remember that rescue because it was later depicted in the film Captain Phillips. Her last command was from 2016 to 2017 as U.S. Naval Forces Europe and U.S. Naval Forces Africa. She simultaneously led NATO's Allied Force Command Naples with oversight of missions from the Western Balkans to Iraq. Admiral Howard is a desert storm and Operation Iraqi Freedom veteran. In 1999, Admiral Howard became the first African-American woman to command a ship in the U.S. Navy. And in 2014, she was the first woman to become a four-star admiral in the U.S. Navy and the first woman to be appointed to the position of vice chief of naval operations. That means she was the number two in a military service. She is currently the visiting Shapiro professor at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University, where she's focused on the cyber domain and associated issues in strategy and policy. Admiral Howard, Michelle, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Oh, yeah. I'm I'm in a different
1: time zone, so I already had my coffee this morning.
0: Oh, you are? Where are you? I thought you were in the Washington area. No, I retired to Colorado. Oh, my goodness. So it's uh, Just coming up on midday there, or maybe just yeah. after. Awesome. It's, we're, we're two hours behind you. Okay. All right. So it's lunchtime, but nevertheless, you are caffeinated, ready to go. We are going to be digging into our 10 espresso shots, focused on how our young listeners can break into the Navy and hopefully build really meaningful, successful careers there. So what Entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into the Navy. Well, gosh, uh, just about everything you can think of. So there's there's two aspects. One is uh,
1: there's the enlisted community, which is our largest, our sailors, and then there are technical to physical types of occupations for those folks. Everything from intelligence analysts, hospital corpsmen, to SEALs, to engineers. And then there's officers who come in through uh, ROTC or Annapolis or OCS. And uh, we have professional engineers, Civil Engineering Corps, uh, more affectionately known as CBs, two officers who lead and manage on submarines, aircraft carriers or fly aircraft or my community, Surface
0: Warfare, where you grow up serving at sea on a ship and eventually command a ship. Gotcha. And... For those, obviously, those who want to go the ROTC route, more of the officer route, there is a clear path. If someone wants to go the enlisted route, can they pick the area that they focus on? So when uh, someone contacts a recruiter, so we are all volunteer
1: force, but we're also all recruited force. Normally, they uh, run them through testing to see where their skill sets, what affinities they have to uh, the different occupations in the Navy. And then they'll help walk them through a conversation over
0: where they would do best uh, as compared to where their interests are. Gotcha. Speaking of skills, and you and I were chatting before we started recording, and you explained that if you are ever able to reach the rank of admiral, which you did, and obviously just a handful of you out there, uh, you don't get to choose the people who work on your team. But because you were an admiral, this is a relevant question. What is a useful, hard and soft skill or skills that you look for, Michelle, in the young people that you hired when you were an admiral? So the first thing was a communication skill set. So I decided
1: that when I would receive candidates, I would not do face-to-face interviews. I always interviewed my candidates over the phone, one, because that meant some folks who, if they were halfway around the world, had the same sort of interaction with me than folks who could have come in for a face-to-face interview. But what I found is, by doing that, I got a better sense of how articulate they were, whether or not they spoke with clarity, and then whether or not we could communicate well with each other which would be a very important aspect of uh, a close working relationship. And then one of the questions I would ask people is what kind of technology they own. And uh, I was sometimes surprised that there are folks out there who are deliberately living off the grid, don't have a smartphone. So, and it's hard to function today without having all of these uh, mobile devices. And being able to flow data and information. So I found I needed folks who were technologically savvy, uh, in order to
0: make sure we had smooth work days. Absolutely. No Luddites need apply, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they could apply.
1: (laughs) The question would be if they did so well in the interview, I'd be willing to, you know, invest training time in them to get them up to where they needed to be. Yeah, for sure. What
0: about a soft skill. What did you look for in the candidates who applied to work with you? So continuing on the idea of communication, uh, you need folks who, when you're
1: working and at the senior level, you do a lot of engagement with government leaders, sometimes heads of state, uh, state department folks, U.S. State Department folks, ministers of foreign affairs, and then your counterparts who are senior military officers, I needed people who were approachable, who uh, were customer oriented, because setting up an engagement with a senior person, if the work around that, and then they're working with other staff people in other countries, sometimes with other languages, if all of that gets off to a wrong footing between the people who are making, organizing the meetings and the sessions and the discussions, then that just is a barrier to getting to strong engagement and dialogue with uh, these fellow leaders.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't reflect well on you. No, that's true.
1: <laughs> I try not to think about that part. You not <laughs> only gooned it up for yourself, young man, you gooned it up for me too. Golly, yeah. now are we going to fix it. <laughs> well, I'm guessing that
0: the folks that you hired weren't gooping it up.
1: No, no,
0: if, if, uh,
1: but I did have a rule set about if people made mistakes, they had to own up to their mistakes. And then I, I tell people the first day they were working for me, I don't fire anybody. If you make a mistake, we adjudicate how much more time you owe me and
0: you get extended in your job for that many weeks or months, depending on how bad the mistake is. Oh, nice. I like that. That's something I think I may add to my roster. With each staff, what I found is, once they realize I'm not about
1: firing people, they would use that idea as a way to break bad news. They come in and go, oh, Admiral, I think I've got a two-weeker mistake I need to discuss with you. (laughs) Okay,
0: (laughs) let's go. Great. So what about life experiences? What in your experience, Admiral, are the most useful ones for someone starting out in this field, maybe cultivate ahead of time?
1: So the military, the Navy and all the other services, it's, it's truly about leadership. And then foundationally, you really have to understand yourself and your strengths in order to be a good leader. So I think you have to periodically assess yourself, but you also have to develop objectivity about yourself. And um, learn how to take feedback
0: and, and listen. And I would imagine for our young listeners who may still be in school, that there are any number of ways they can start cultivating that, whether it's through team sports or other competitive environments, debate or volunteer work or even working as a cashier or a waiter or waitress. Absolutely. So sometimes I'd have people working
1: for me and they would lament the fact the way that particular unit was organized. They felt they weren't in a leadership role and that they couldn't exhibit those strengths. And I would remind them that there's a lot of community work that needs to be done. There's there's always Girl Scout and Boy Scout leaders. There's always the soccer manager, the football, assistant football coach assistant, that the opportunity to lead in a community and make a difference for young people is a great place to practice leadership and make a difference in, uh, in, in wherever you are. I had a senior chief take me up on it once. We were deployed to Bahrain and uh, he was a shop of one. He was my yeoman admin leader. So I talked to him about exhibiting his leadership in other ways. So he went and talked to the fleet chaplain who said, you know, there's a school for disabled children here in Bahrain. They're Bahraini and they need help. So he created a community fund drive to, you know, have people bring in school supplies. It kind of grew out of control. We started to have friends of Deployed sailors or parents of deployed sailors start sending in school supplies for this school. He would leave teams over there to help paint the school. It was phenomenal. And uh, he got an award for that six months
0: after he started it. So there's great opportunities in life to practice leadership. I love that example because I think it demonstrates another super important aspect of leadership, and that is initiative. Taking the initiative to do things, maybe to fill in a gap, as you just illustrated there. What about someone's major? Is it a deciding factor to get into the Navy? And I ask that specifically for somebody who wants to take the officer route. In other words, if they haven't done what you've done, which is to go to the US Naval Academy, is it a deal breaker? So those
1: discussions will happen normally when someone's applying for our ROTC program. And we are focused on technical degrees. So uh, there are scholarships. There are some scholarships that are focused on language because we need those skill sets. But most most of the time we're looking for officers who have a background, aerospace, mechanical engineering. Even if you're going to be a pilot, Having uh, a background in aerospace makes a lot of sense. And so when I went to Annapolis, the requirement was 80% of the midshipmen had to be in a technical major. And we tend to run a pretty high percentage for people who are applying for our ROTC scholarships to be, and it can be anything from math to physics to chemistry, but we
0: need technical backgrounds. Well, I know it's too late for me anyway, but that would have been a deal breaker for me. No, no, math is your friend. (laughs) Maybe you've been my teacher, but I got to tell you, it's not where my strengths lie. Let's just put it that way. So in the end, we we have folks who we have
1: a a certain percentage who come in. They're the history majors and English majors, and that does not preordain that they don't grow up to be senior leaders because in, in the end, as you move up the ranks, it's about command and your ability to perform, do mission and command. And, you know, English majors are great communicators, so they tend to do well. But we also, we're a very, like the Air Force, we're very technical service. So you want people who are going to be nuclear powered engineers on submarines, they need to have a technical background.
0: Yeah, for sure. What about a graduate school degree? And less so for those who are starting out in the Navy, but more so for those who want to make it up to three stars or four stars. So what the requirements
1: are for someone to go from captain, someone who's had 25 to 27 years of service time, who's commanded a few times, those precepts are signed out by the secretary. They normally do not require that someone have a master's degree in order to be promoted to a one star. But what happens is most people, by the time they get to commander or captain, they have something like 85, 90 percent of the officers will have, have picked up a master's along the way across a myriad of different areas, depending on where their interests are. So for us... It, it becomes something that's a plus, okay? You're, you've are you had 25, 26 years in the Navy. You have a master's degree. You have an area that you can specialize in outside of your core mission area, surface warfare, or submarine warfare, or,
0: or aviation. Uh, and so it's it slowed down favorably. Yeah, I can totally imagine that, especially there's a little bit of peer pressure when 80% of your peers... <laughs> have gotten a mask. Yes, yes, yeah. So, Michelle, what was the best part for you of being in the Navy? It
1: was always the mission. It was the sailors and Marines because they they can do miracles every day, no matter how crazy <laughs> the obstacles are, or how unique or how surprising the mission is. And then the there is nothing like. Being sent uh, on short notice to another country to help do humanitarian assistance, help people in Indonesia who've lost their homes, who need just fundamentals, water, food, and medical service. I mean, those are tremendously rewarding missions. There's nothing like the excitement of doing a rescue mission like uh, we did with uh, Captain Phillip's or just regular maritime security missions doing providing uh, protection for at sea oil platforms, infrastructure at sea for other countries. So it's a wonderful life full of challenges. And I think some success tends to be sweeter when you have a lot of
0: challenges to overcome. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So what was the part of your job As a four star admiral, that sucked the most? The part that was least favorable. (laughs) So, would you? uh, (laughs) That's a diplomatic way
1: of putting it. Yes, yes. So, when you're, uh, so my first job as a four star, I was vice chief of naval operations. I was the number two in the Navy. At the time, we were about 326,000 active duty people, about 70, 80,000 reserves and about 200,000 civilians. It was about 278 ships at the time, that's ships and submarines. And uh, so part of the oversight is train equipment of all the functionality across all the different communities. Uh, probably the least favorable part of that is you have to go testify to Congress every year. About the readiness of the services, or about the budget, and so you end up going to the different Armed Services committees, You're on C-SPAN, and um, they're called hearings. I used to call them listenings. <laughs> oh, you got do lectures? I think so. Yes, <laughs> you know, and um, that's that's part of our political process. Congress has oversight responsibilities for the services, so they want to hear from you about what's going well, what's not going well, how do you keep your forces ready, so that they can appropriately budget money to the areas where it's
0: most needed. But it's it's uh, it's not always a cordial process, I can tell you that. Yeah, I have no doubt, having covered many of those hearings during my time as a Capitol Hill correspondent and State Department correspondent, I know they can get a little bit contentious. So, uh, Admiral, what is the best career advice you've ever gotten?
1: It was a lesson from my mom before I even started a career. It was about You have to be persistent and go after what you think is right, even if all around you
0: are saying you're not allowed to do it. And how did she share that advice with you? So when I was 12, I saw a
1: documentary on television, and I think it was about the Air Force Academy, and I decided I wanted to go to a service academy. And I went and talked to my older brother who said, nope, you can't go. They're closed to women. I thought he was messing with me. So I went and talked to my mother, who's like, ah, oh, no, honey, it's the law. Women can't go to service academies. So that was 1972. It was the law. And then she said, no, wait, you're you're 12. You might change your mind. But if you don't and you're old enough, you should apply. And then if you're rejected because you're a woman, we'll sue the government. And I, <laughs> What? Oh, so, my gosh. So then she walked me through the importance of going after what you believe is right. And then she gave me a really big lesson. She said, look, you could apply, be rejected. You could sue the government. It could take years before it got to a place where it could get adjudicated. And you might be too old to go by the time you get to a decision. She said, but if the government agrees with you and changes the law, she said, other women might get to go in your place. And that's
0: just as important. Your mother, can I say, is an incredible is. woman? Yeah. Is. Yes, she is. Yeah, she is. Is she a lawyer? Where did she get that? Oh, my gosh. My parents, uh, my mother grew
1: up in England in World War II. So she finished what would be the equivalent of high school. My grandfather moved from Virginia to Baltimore during World War II. My dad was uh, like my mom, a kid. And then he he was dropped out of school by 12 or 13 because he was helping earn money to help raise the other kids. There ended up being nine of them. And uh, so he enlisted in the Air Force, we still Army Air Corps, I think, at 17, and uh, got his GED while he was in. Then my dad, with the GI Bill, after he retired from the Air Force went on to get his bachelor's degree and got his degree six months before I graduated from Annapolis. My mother went to college part-time her whole life and finally got her associates in her 50s and then graduated with a bachelor's when she was 65.
0: That story is just remarkable on so many levels. And It's remarkable both because your mother has clearly a very process-oriented brain and that instead of just saying, you know, we'll call the media and we'll complain about this or we'll do that and the other, she immediately was very strategic in the counsel that she gave you. And it's also remarkable because You identified at age 12 a very unusual career path for a young girl. And illegal. (laughs) And then then President Ford throws a curveball and makes it legal when you're 16. So you were able to apply. Absolutely. It was
1: a great in my brother's version of the story, the world, molecules realign, the whole world shifts to suit me as usual. You know, luck and timing can be major
0: factors in success. I, I don't doubt about it. One of my guests, Dove Baron, is among many, many other things, extremely knowledgeable about quantum physics. And he would likely attribute what your brother calls sort of the molecules realigning themselves to the law of quantum resonance and that the energy that you're putting out was attracting all those good things. So, but that's for a whole nother conversation. Two final espresso shots questions. What movies, if any, (laughs) or Netflix, Hulu, Amazon shows, or books do you think accurately depict your profession?
1: Well, I would say Captain Phillips is 40% accurate and 60% entertainment. As a backstory, the military people, when they filmed that the Navy provided technical support ships and crews off of Virginia, those are sailors. So when you see those functions, like there's a security squad that goes on board, the merch to help get them back to, uh, I think, Mombasa, Africa. Those are sailors doing the work. When you see the woman at the end of the film, the Corman, that is a Corman off of one of the ships. He used the actual military people and trying to have them do what they would have done in the operation. And so there were actually very few professional actors in that movie. So uh, you can watch that movie and go, oh, wow, those are... Military folks just sort of doing what they were really doing. You see people on the bridge, people driving the ship, giving orders.
0: Those those were sailors. Cool. Yes. yes. Well, I will definitely be including a link to Captain Phillips. And that was a great movie, by the way. I thoroughly enjoyed it. But now I need to watch it again with new eyes now that you've told me that. So for me, there's only one nod. At one point the CEO of the Brain Bridge is calling
1: the one star who's in charge of the operation. And then it's like, this is Admiral Howard, blah, 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 blah. So they made it a woman's voice. So I was pretty happy about that. But it wasn't your voice? No. No, it's a it's an actress. Oh,
0: darn. That was It's a movie. Cool. It is a movie. See, the real mission's much more exciting. I have no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> so final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about being in the U.S. Navy?
1: So the over the years when I've talked to the public, whether it's Chamber of Commerce groups or Rotary groups, the biggest surprises for people, for the audience, are how well integrated women are in the Navy and all the different types of work that they can do. They are, they've been astonished to find that women have been divers since the 1970s, that women have been Seabees. One of my classmates grew up to be the head of the Seabees as a two star, that they're on submarines, that they're on aircraft carriers, that they've commanded carrier strike groups, they've been fleet commanders, they're cryptologists, Women fighter pilots, eh? they're astonished to find out we've already had women fighter pilots who've reached the rank of one and two star. Whatever's possible in the Navy, your gender does not stop you from going after that occupation if that's what
0: you want to do. What an awesome note to end on. Admiral Howard, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. You are clearly one badass woman, and I can't wait to dig into what it was like as a four-star Admiral. Check out show notes to see if that episode with Admiral Howard has already dropped. Thank you so, so much.
1: You're welcome. And on a coffee note, a cup of Joe is a Navy expression that came out
0: in the 1900s. I didn't know that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live.